in the immortal words of Bill Lumberg, what's happening? Welcome to episode four of the Bacon Warrior podcast. Uh, we have a really great show for you today, and we're very excited. We don't have a sponsor yet because we'll never sell out to the corporate oligarchy unless they pay us enough. Here's Spartan Dog 97. Thanks, Spartan Dog 97. When I'm not dry coughing and having a high fever, I'm Spartan Dog 97. I'm joined by my co-host, Lucas Whitney. What's going on? Not much. Uh, just, I'm still here. I'm still quarantined, and it's starting to slowly eat away at me a little bit, day by day. But at least I'm working, so I'm grateful for that. A lot of people aren't. But hang in there. I, I, we'll, we'll overcome it. We'll, we'll survive. You know, we're, we're, the, we're the beacon of hope at Bacon Wire, so we're going to survive this. <laughs> beacon of hope, indeed. Yep. So here's what we got on the docket today. We have an awesome interview with Matt Brown, former journalist yeah. at SB Nation and author. Uh, we really got into the minutia of college football, of higher education, accounting, the history of college football. We cut it up with him. It was a really, it was a lot of fun. And then later we'll have on our friend Brett and we'll pick our dream foursomes to play golf with after this quarantine is over because all of a sudden everybody's a fucking golfer. (laughs) Yeah. Don't get me started. I want to golf too, but I mean, the, the half these people protesting probably have a, fucking power built uh tps golf set that you buy for a hundred dollars on special from dunham's and they're just one to fire it up once or twice a year it sits in their go- in their trunk the whole season and half of these golfers are are those people where they don't even wear golf shoes on the course and you know just wear their sneakers and they're just they're casuals who like to think that they're professional golfers now who feel like they can they should protest this. It's just a little ridiculous. That's my yeah. So we're going to start. We got a couple quick updates on the recruiting trail. Uh, first, uh, Mel Tucker picked up another 2021 cornerback. His name is Antoine Booth. He is a six-foot cornerback. He raised 185. He's from Demantha Catholic High School in Baltimore, which is a huge, huge talent pool breeding ground for talent um he's uh tucker again hitting another three-star cornerback lucas um have you had any chance to kind of take a look at him no i did not uh i'm a little behind on that i just saw the okay i just saw the committed tweet um that must just have i must have just missed it yeah he committed he committed kind of late last night okay um you know he's he's kind of another project um he can he's a little bit he's a little bit undersized you know six foot is kind of just barely on the fringe of kind of where most people want cornerbacks to be nowadays but he is incredibly athletic and physical I think that there's a narrative building around this 2021 Michigan State class and its physicality every Every highlight video I've seen out of a Michigan State commit, they hit fucking hard. So I, you know, I we we need that. Yeah, we need guys who will go out there and lay the lumber. Yeah. So I think that's 
you know, it's not going to be, we talked about this with Matt Brown. You know, I think that people are kind of getting a little bit ahead of themselves. Um, and I think that we kind of need to come down back to earth a little bit. Um, there are some people who kind of going out of their way to kind of go, okay, we're back. We're back. We're far from back. Yeah. We got to pump the brakes a little bit. Um, I'm optimistic, but like we discussed earlier, like I'd say five wins is probably for this year is prop for whatever we have is, is about as good as it's going to get anything above that as a bonus. But you know, he's, I just love that in the last two weeks, these recruits are just coming in and I don't like, I keep repeating, I'm going to beat a dead horse. I don't care about the stars. If, if they look, if they look like they're going to play and they hit hard, that's what I want. That's the MSU football I want back. Yeah. I think, I think it was a top down issue last year where it just kind of looked like a bunch of people quit. Right. And I don't want to see that anymore. No, I, it did feel like that last year. And I I think a lot of it was coaching too, because I, I don't know why all of a sudden I remember in the Arizona state game um, when they're driving to try and tie the game or take the, you know, win it um, at, you know, when it was 10, seven ASU that Lewerke was trying to signal to the coaches. Like they, he was walking down the field and he's going, you could tell, you could tell he's saying, what the hell are we doing? And, you know, people are going to not see that shit and think all oh, the players just quit. You know, the players to gave up, it wasn't all D'Antonio. It's a mixture of that, but I don't think the players ever gave up. I think a lot of it was just communication based but you know seeing stuff like that for a senior quarterback and for a coaching staff that's very experienced and very tenured was alarming in in my opinion yeah um so I love that Tucker's Tucker's heart you know kind of going after physical kids that that'll want to go out and compete whenever they start playing for Michigan State which I think is which I think is the right way to kind of resurrect a program that was known for that for so long definitely um we now move to the basketball court. Uh, Tom Izzo out here on Zoom. Come on the pod, Tommy. We know you got Zoom. Open invitation anytime. Open, open invitation, Tommy. Uh, Pierre Brooks. Uh, we're going to make a crystal bacon prediction right now. Pierre Brooks is burnt bacon to Michigan State. Ooh. Uh, by the time this pod releases, he might have already announced that he was committing. Um, He's he committing. Is, when is he committing? I'm not. I don't. I don't have the timeline in front of me. I just have his 24/7 page. But I know that our sources say that he's picking Michigan State. He's committing tomorrow at 2 p.m. Okay. So yeah, by the so that would be Wednesday. So by the time this pod comes out, Pierre Brooks will be committed to Michigan State. He is a six-five shooting guard out of Douglas Commit, out of Douglas Academy in Detroit. We got him over Michigan and Xavier, and man, does it feel good to win a recruiting battle over Michigan? <laughs> yeah, if if we take uh, Brooks, man, it's going to be another kick in the nuts to Michigan fans. And you know, I, I heard another uh, podcast talk about it earlier today. Like, you know, they didn't feel bad. You know, I I felt bad in the sense of it would suck to lose two five stars in 
in a 12 hour span, but those guys were never signed. You know, they didn't sign anything. Like Todd was just a commit. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm coming, you know, that can kind of be an empty gesture at some sorts, but you know, if we get, if we get Brooks, that's going to hurt them even more, especially with all the chirping they've been doing too. It's, it's not going to help their, help their uh, mental, mental state, especially with everything else going on. Yeah, and this guy seems like a typical Izzo product. You know, the yeah. game film that he has on his 24-7 page, he plays tight defense. He shoots the ball really well. His shooting motion is kind of weird, but it's not like Lonzo ball broken. <laughs> but uh, he'll, uh, you know, I think he'll be a good pickup. And, you know, this obviously raises questions about scholarship spaces available. Uh, going forward for Michigan State, I think one thing I'm not comfortable with is um, saying whether or not kids are going to get kind of where kids are going to be in the future. You know, I think that this Pierre Brooks is a awesome insurance policy against Rocket Rots deciding to leave early, which I think is a very, very, very high possibility is yes. Rocket leaving after next year. So I think having a – When the natty, you know, he's going to leave. Yeah, right. Go out on top. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I think he's a good – I think Pierre's kind of a good insurance policy against, against Rocket leaving. So um, let's get into our interview. We have an interview with Matt Brown. He is, like I said in the intro, he, is, he was a journalist at SB Nation. He was recently furloughed. He – Runs a newsletter called Extra Points, uh, which is a very informative um, deep dive into kind of the business side of college football. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking to him. I did a lot of the talking. Um, I feel kind of bad. Lucas just kind of sat there. No, and listened. I'm, I'm okay with it. I was a little – I had to kind of rush down here. Uh, like I was talking to SD before it. Um, you know, I had to come home and have some wife time and watch a couple episodes of New Girl. So I uh, – you know, had to had to do my my husband duties for a little bit, and then her and her boyfriend are you know just hanging out right now. So <laughs> keep me occupied for right now. Yeah, Lucas Lucas is recording the pod and playing Switch right now. <laughs> I was fascinated just how I I was skimming through his book. Like I bought the book on Amazon as we were interviewing, and I was just looking at it, and I really would you know I'd love to have him on again because I 2007 like. He doesn't talk about the interview, so I'm not spoiling it. 2007, you know, that whole college football season was insane, and especially the way it ended. And I would just love to go down a rabbit hole with him and talk about all the what-ifs, you know, starting with App State not beating Michigan, all the way to Pitt not beating West Virginia. Like, it was just a fascinating interview. And the guy is – it was just fucking awesome. He was such a great guy to talk to. Yeah, so let's get into that right now. Here's Matt Brown. We welcome on our first non-MSU guest to the podcast. He writes a newsletter called Extra Points that you can subscribe to now. He is an author, and he was a journalist for SB Nation. We welcome on Matt Brown. Matt, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having me on, fellas. It's a weird question to to answer right about now, but I think – all things considered, considering I just got like furloughed a couple of days ago, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Like the, I've got, got some security. I've got some fun things to write about. Got a bunch of other projects going on. Like things could be a lot worse. Cool. Cool. That's the so, way to look at it. Yeah. It's, that's a great outlook. 
So you're, um, you're quarantining with two young daughters right now. Um, on a scale of one to Paul Rudd and 40 year old virgin, how sick of you are, how sick are you of frozen? Uh, uh, dude. Um, I, I don't think I have the right words for that on like an, an, a family podcast, especially because both of my kids are awake and could potentially hear me right now. But like when I close my eyes and sleep, I can still hear the soundtrack to frozen Two. Um, you know, God bless the people at Chicago public schools who have really tried hard to like invent an online curriculum, basically with no notice, but they're just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it sticks. So at my unlicensed, like elementary school Academy right now, my kids are watching a hell of a lot more Disney plus than they were, uh, a couple months ago, which means I've seen Disney frozen Two at least eight times since this has started. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I got to, you know, that's, that's, that's a tough moment. I can't even, um, I didn't even like the first Frozen. So having to watch the sequel over and over and over, that's, uh, that's no point. You, bueno. you, you just have to completely disassociate yourself from the experience. Like when it's on at this point, if I try to follow the plot, if I engage with the songs, am I gonna, I'm going to feel extra depressed. But if I look at this as just, okay, my two kids are now engaged in something else for maybe 45 minutes. Now is my chance to do some actual writing. Now is my chance to, to catch up on some other things. Then it becomes tolerable. And you just have to like pretend that the music isn't happening. Right. That's <laughs> I'm sure good. this is how our parents felt, with, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Lion yeah. King. or whatever. Oh, my parents absolutely about. felt that way with Toy Story. I know that for, <laughs> yeah. I know that for a fact. So uh, you're an OSU alumni. Mm-hmm. This is a MSU centric podcast. Uh, what OSU lost to MSU was more personally punishing for you, 2013 or 2015? You know, honestly, I think, I think 1998 was probably the most personally punishing. Oh, a way um, back machine. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm a little bit older than you, than you guys, but like, you know, 1998, I was 11 and I feel like that's the prime age to be just completely devastated by any sporting event, right? When you're like between nine and 12, you haven't really discovered girls yet. School isn't really nearly as big a part of your life. You don't really have like, the 10 year olds really have hobbies, right? And like, right. you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kid growing up in Ohio. I just had the 1997 World Series happen to me where Jose Mesa blows it for the oh, Cleveland Indians man. against the Marlins. My team, Ohio State, loses to Michigan every single year. And it's, it's, it's the collective like shared trauma of that is all over Columbus. And now you have, this amazing team. You finally beat Michigan. You're loaded with NFL talent. You're a gajillion point favorite over Michigan State. And you choke. Like that. Like I, I feel like if you look at the cracks of like the 2013 team or, or the Ezekiel Elliott game, you could kind of see Ohio State blowing a game like that earlier in the year. There were, there were coaching issues. There were depth chart issues. Like weather is weird. Like these things happen. 98, if you play that game 15 times, Ohio State wins 14. And like that, given how old I was, was more of a gut punch. Like, you know, 2015, I was a working journalist at that point. And like, I'm going to admit, I still like Ohio State, but I was more inter- I, I, I was more focused on my job and other than to feel like personally crushed at that moment until later. My, my first reaction was just like, the comments on my website are just going to suck. Not like <laughs> I am personally heartbroken by this event, you know? You were dreading, you were dreading the Twitter comments more than uh, anything else. Ohio State Twitter... God bless him. During the best <laughs> circumstances, 
is frustrating. Like I understand any college football fan not loving Ohio State because I think that's probably one of the more insufferable online fan bases. But oh, 2015, oh, oh, buddy. <laughs> 20, listen, I mean, I'm not going to say they're the worst because like Florida State Twitter during Jameis Winston was, I think, my worst. Penn State Twitter is, is pretty terrible. Um, I, in my professional experience, Michigan, Michigan, Michigan is yes. I mean, like anybody who like in earnest in the 2020 complaints about Bagman, like they they can just they can get the hell out of here. Like I don't have any patience <laughs> for that. And like the 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 Venn diagram between Michigan Twitter and people who are earnestly concerned about like the sanctity of amateurism, it's almost a circle. But so for me, like that's that's very frustrating. But Ohio State, especially in 2015. Horrible. You beat a team by 40 and they're, they're, they're busting out the sackcloth and ashes and, you know, for, you know, acting like they lost. And like, as I'm watching the game, I'm more worried about that than I am actually experiencing the event itself. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think, I think the close, the way you describe that, I think that's 2006 Notre Dame for us. Um, sure. That oh, was that was yeah. an epic collapse, but we did get Holy an epic, crap. we did get an epic sports radio ran out of it. So you know, it's, it's a fair, I think, I think I call it a fair trade-off, <laughs> but yeah, that, but, that, that rant is, I'll never forget it. I'll quote it till the end of time. You got to look it up on YouTube. If you have time, Mike Valeni, he's a, he's a guy from 97.1. He's an MSU alumni. And he, it was, he was losing his voice. His co-host was like, his co-host was like trying to calm him down. They, they was, wanted him to leave. They wanted him to leave halfway through. He like, his voice went really hoarse and he was telling someone, shut up, shut up. I'm going to finish. And they were trying to tell him like, you need to go home. Like they thought he was going to have an aneurysm and just collapse on the floor or something. It was crazy. I mean, that would probably make compelling radio. Oh, it was, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. So uh, your book, uh, what if uh, focuses on uh, different points in college football history that, you know, if they, if they broke a little differently, uh, might've shifted the landscape. Um, as someone who loves going down rabbit holes, like what was the deepest rabbit hole you went down? Like when you were researching your book? Oh man, I, um, that's that's a good question. I, I I feel like part of the impetus for writing this to begin with was a lot of the big 12 conference realignment stories I had to write for SB nation. And that really kind of got me thinking about digging into the Wayback machine at some of these failed conference realignment pitches. I, I think the one that I enjoyed the most to really get into the weeds about was the airplane conference, which was a proposed national league that would have added the, the, the what would eventually become the, the premier PAC 12 institutions. This was before the PAC eight was, was formed. Um, and the premier Eastern independence and national program. So you would have had a league in the early 60s, right, with USC, Washington, UCLA, Stanford, and also Notre Dame, and also Penn State, and Army, and, uh, you know, in some configurations that involved Syracuse, and some, and involved some schools in the South. And it really came very close to happening, if not for some weird internal civil, uh, not, not civil, Cold War era politics uh, with, in California, and also with some top military brass. But obviously, that would have blown up the entire modern history of college athletics, right? The, the idea yeah. of separating conferences from geographies, the idea of, of killing what makes Notre Dame Notre Dame and, you know, forever altering uh, their mystique. It changes the Big Ten completely. We, we don't have the same SEC. Like, th- this was fascinating. And it's fascinating to, to read a lot of these commentaries from the early 1960s as college football was 
kind of just beginning to reach a more modern era in terms of what it meant financially, how people did scheduling, a lot of it felt really pretty contemporary. Um, you know, that there's a lot of stories in this book about specific games and everything, but for me, I found some of the administrative decisions that really could have gone 50-50 were the ones that are most impactful to the sport as a whole, whether that was the Airpoint Conference, whether that was the um, Penn-Notre Dame television deal that created the modern NCAA enforcement state. You know, these are things that that we, we don't have bagman scandals. We don't have cable television deals. We don't have Rutgers without the stuff that happened in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I think um, especially the Penn broadcast rights thing, you know, it's so interesting to kind of look at the modern Ivy League and kind of the the relative obscurity they kind of live in outside of their their reputation as as academic institutions. And, like, you have Penn who is one of these who – was already kind of the black sheep of these kind of institutions uh, trying to push the envelope and become this kind of major national brand in the same way Notre Dame kind of already was. And like how, if the NCAA didn't step in and, and kind of say you either, you either get in line or you're out kind of set the tone for the rest of modern college football. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't think it's a stretch at all that had Penn been able to keep their TV deal. Like, they were one of the first two schools to sign an individual broadcasting deal for television. It was them in Notre Dame and early uh, 1950s Penn um, was not a pushover. Ivy league program. Like they were better than Penn state. They were playing Ohio State. They were playing Notre Dame. They were playing these, these big national schedules, and they were getting 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 people in Franklin Fields. It was a big deal, and that terrified everybody. It wasn't just the NCAA, because I think this is an important distinction. Now, when you talk about the NCAA, generally we're talking about member schools. The, it isn't you know, Mark Emmert, uh, and, and you know, in 1951, the central like, – administration of the NCAA was like four people, right? It was, it was a much smaller organization. It was university presidents that freaked out and particularly university presidents in the big 10. Like, I don't think anybody really outside of the Ivy league killed this TV deal more than Michigan because they are terrified of this idea that if you lived in Pittsburgh or if you lived in Philadelphia and you could watch the Penn Quakers on TV, you wouldn't go see a local football game and we'd all be just inundated with Notre Dame and Penn. And of course that's happened with Notre Dame and people have complained about that. And yeah, now you're stuck with them. They're on, no matter where you are in the country, um, excuse me, you see Notre Dame, but that, that killed that dynasty. And, and now, and Penn had to go back and then the Ivy league actually formed. And now they're not even particularly good for an Ivy league football program. And that kind of let Penn state and later temple move in there. But that changed everything. There's this outstanding book that, that talks about this that I, I recommend to everybody who's even a little bit interested in it beyond it's much better than mine <laughs> called the, called the, the 50 year seduction, which, which just specifically traces the influence of television money on college football from that moment, all the way up through the BCS, you know, up into the big 10 network. And I don't think there's been any force in this sport that's, you know, created changes and made people rich and really kind of pushed the, 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 the infrastructure of, of everything, how we make decisions more than television. Like if you want to know how things are, are work and why they don't work. And like, that, I think, I think that's the industry you really have to understand as a football fan. 
Yeah. Um, tell it. It's kind of crazy to hear um, like these modern TV deals and then to like go all the way back and figure out as soon as TV started, schools are trying to capitalize. And it's funny that you bring up Michigan because the first chapter of your book is kind of this, this kind of era where Michigan gets basically expelled from the Big Ten and they have to go independent for 15 years. And yeah. because the other Big Ten schools won't schedule them, they start playing a school then known as MAC, which later became Michigan State. And you mentioned that at the time their mascot was the Farmers and that you said that they should have kept that. Um, you weren't serious when you, when you wrote that, were you? <laughs> uh, no, I, I was not. It's, it's funny, Michigan, you, know, you guys weren't the only school to go by Farmers. A lot of ag schools, um, when they were first formed, did that. Um, I think Iowa State did. Uh, I think one of the Kansas schools did. I mean, you know, if you, when you look at when these schools were very first formed, a lot of them have changed names. It was pretty common to have a nickname that was centered around your major academic discipline or your sponsoring institution. So you had Northwestern and USC, they were the fighting Methodists because they used to be Methodist institutions. You had a lot of Aggies, way more than you have now. You had a lot of farmers. And I mean, I think farmers is funny. There's, there's a bunch of Spartans already, right? Like, you know, it's the, you say what you will about the Nebraska Cornhuskers, but uh, it's unique. Uh, it has a, a particular iconography that, that's very recognizable. But uh, Michigan State, uh, probably correctly, went in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a fever dream that night about Sparty, the current iteration of Sparty, but in like overalls and a straw hat. <laughs> like everything was the same, sure. except he had overalls and a straw hat. And I was like... That does not look good. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'd be rocking a Nike shirt that said farmers on it or anything. Yeah. yeah. I would, but, you know, I'm from rural Ohio. If, if, if anybody out there that still has that nickname, you know, hook, you know, call Homefield Apparel up or call somebody up and I, w I will buy, I'll buy your, your, your farmer's apparel. I'm sure somebody still has that as their mascot. So um, one thing in your book that you use to describe, that you try to use to uh, – show how teams were playing was this statistic called S and P plus and you described it in the book, but I still don't understand it. So can you explain it to me? Like I'm five years old. Sure. So the, the S and P plus isn't something that I, that I invented. It was, it was, it was uh, originated my former colleague, now ESPN analyst, Bill Connolly used to work with me at SP Nation. And what SP, S and P plus or SP plus as he calls it now tries to, uh, dem mathematically demonstrate here is your efficiency adjusted for both pace and opponent. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Like if you're trying to compare who has a better passing offense and you're looking at say Texas tech, an air raid team going to play a higher tempo will probably throw the ball 55 times a game. And you're comparing it to somebody like Wisconsin that's going to run a power running game and is going to run a very slow pace and might only throw the ball 22 times a game. And they might, over the course of the game, the Badgers might run 20 fewer plays than Texas Tech. Well, who has the better passing offense? You, might, you, you could just look at total yardage and say, well, clearly Texas Tech throws the ball a gajillion, you know, has averages 400 yards passing a game. Therefore, they're the better offense. But the point of football is to score points. And so if you throw the ball less often and you are more able, you are more likely to get first downs and you are less likely to throw, you know, interceptions or have negative plays and your team scores points, the team Wisconsin might theoretically have a better passing offense. And you wouldn't be able to, to necessarily tell that 
from just counting stats. And so S&P Plus looks at how successful every single offensive and defensive play is. And it's a successful play if you, you, know, you gain four or five yards on first down and if you convert those third and shorts. And um, it, you know, it, it adjusts things so you, doesn't, you don't have, artificially have a terrible rushing defense if you play against Navy because even a really good team is going to give up 200 yards rushing to Navy. And a right. really good team is probably going to give up 250 yards passing against an air raid team because that's just what they're going to do every single play. So I think this is a useful tool, especially as we go back historically, to look at, to, to kind of compare eras and compare how dominant a particular team was in a particular season. Um, because just looking at points or just looking at yards often doesn't tell the full story. So it's like uh, efficiency. That's kind of what I'm getting out of it. It's, it's kind of like a college football kind version of. of Ken Palm. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. So um, – Another thing you talk about in your book, like the early history of college football, there were a lot of the powers, the power, the blue bloods, let's say in college football were pretty much the same that they are now, Ohio state, LSU, Alabama, Michigan. Right. But there were teams that were successful, especially in very early that, um, that when administrations changes, you called it a de-emphasis, a de-emphasizing of football. Um, now, now that the season might not start on time, do you, do you predict that there's going to be another, another kind of era of de-emphasis amongst struggling institutions? That, that's a great question. And um, I, hadn't really, I hadn't really framed it, I, I guess, in this particular context, but it, it, makes, it makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I do. Like, to go back into history, um, there are a couple of eras where, where schools chose this path. And one of the biggest ones was right after World War II, which is probably the, the last time we had this amount of financial and societal upheaval in American higher education. And there you found particularly a lot of urban Catholic schools realized they just couldn't afford to keep doing this. And some of those teams were good at football. Like Marquette had a good football team uh, for many years. Georgetown was a, a high major uh, football team for a little while. University of San Francisco and, and Santa Clara, uh, St. Mary's uh, had good football teams at times, you know, prior to 1945. And uh, most of those kinds of schools afterwards said, we can't keep spending this kind of money and we're not, we're, we're going to make it a, a specific institutional choice to not compete at this level anymore. And we've had a couple of power programs that even though they had the money for various other reasons made that decision. Maryland, most famously, Minnesota also pretty famously that decided we're going to be more academically selective. We're not going to make the same institutional sacrifices that you have to make in 1955 to be good at college football, whereas Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, some of these other schools decided they were going to do that. So what we're looking at now, I think, is almost unparalleled in how dramatic the financial impact is going to be to higher education. And a big part of that is because so many of these schools, even big schools like the ones that we all went to, we're facing some pretty challenging headwinds. You know, the, the enrollment has decreased across most schools for the last several years. Um, for public institutions, they're getting less money from their state governments, and they're about to get a hell of a lot less money from those state governments over the last several years. So if you're a really, really big school, and you're getting a gigantic television deal, and you have uh, kind of political forces that re require you to prop up college football, like 
my alma mater, Ohio State, or, or like Michigan State, I don't think you're going to see it, the emphasis. But when some of those changes happen, if you're at the, FB, uh, the G5 or the FCS level, where that gigantic money isn't coming in, and you have to balance your budget in a different way, unquestionably. I think we're going to see some schools that are going to say, you know, based on the financial math of 2012, it made sense for us to be a member of Conference USA. It made sense for us to sponsor 14 intercollegiate sports. It made sense for us to, to make some of these choices. And now in 2020, 2021, it doesn't. And so we're going to have to make some different changes. Um, we're already seeing that a little bit right now. We've seen two Division I teams, FBA, like FBS teams drop Olympic sports. Boise State literally just furloughed all of their coaches for a couple of days. Um, the smaller you go as a school, the more at risk generally I think you are. But before next year, I would be very surprised if we don't see some really big changes, including FBS institutions about their whole athletic department, what sports they're going to they're sponsor, what conference they're going to be in, and what sacrifices and investments they're willing to make to have a competitive football team because the whole paradigm's changed. So it's going to create – Will this create kind of a new, a new realignment window where, um, you know, I was kind of thinking that if there is no season, then, you know, someone like Vanderbilt and the SEC, they get a ton of SEC money, obviously. But, you know, they're kind of an academically focused school. They don't have the same admissions requirements as, as Alabama. And <laughs> Lucas rolled his eyes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> But, you know, they already dropped football once before. You know, could, could, could Vanderbilt or Boston College or another team like that who's in the lower half of a power conference go, you know, we got to commit all that we can commit to education. We already can't compete in, in the conference we're in. We're going to we're going to move. And that could, could that open up opportunities for teams like Houston who just backloaded, who just backed up the Brinks truck for a big time coach and then just essentially tanked or UCF who's kind of a quick riser up through the group of five ranks. No, I, 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 I don't think that's where the, the real risk exposure is. So we'll, kind of, we'll, 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 we'll take a look at this here, right? Like if anything, Houston is way more of a risky proposition right now than where Vanderbilt is because think of um, where Houston gets their money, right? Houston has a mega booster, Tillman Fertitta, who is almost bankrupt right now. He was a mega rich person. He's furloughing his empire. He completely over leveraged to buy the Houston Rockets. Um, and he's not in a very strong financial position. So if he's not mega rich, is he committing another 500 grand to Houston athletics? No. And that's your, your, your number one biggest booster. Number two, if you're Houston, what is the industry that your city and your, your, the, the bulk of your alumni base um, works in? And that's oil. Uh, and oil is trading at less than $0 right now. And the immediate forecast for the next three months is oil is, is going to be hovering around $20 a barrel. Um, that means massive job losses across that industry. And those are people that give money to Houston, to Texas Tech, to a lot of the FCS, to Texas States and, and Texas San Antonio's and a lot of these schools. They're not going to have as much of that money. Vanderbilt's alumni, they're already rich. And if you've got a lot of rich doctors, if you've got a lot of rich engineers, uh, people who are not as uh, you know focused on one or two industries where they're going to have that same exposure, they are going to be in a better position. The, the schools that I think right now, if I had to look at who is most at risk at division, at the FBS level of making some big changes, it's way farther down the totem pole. If you're UConn, 
and you're looking at this right now, knowing your travel expenses and you're not getting a big television broadcast contract. If you're looking at an abbreviated season where you, maybe you miss a body bag game or um, where your university is, is facing even more budget cuts and you're not going to make money from football, it's a way easier conversation for you to get out of the game than it is for Vanderbilt. Because if they're doing that, they're walking away from maybe a $70 million paycheck from uh, ESPN's new television deal with the SEC. So I would look at schools that don't have stable financial homes. I would look at public institutions that are not state flagships, particularly in areas of declining population. So in our neck of the woods, Akron, Youngstown State, Kent State, uh, you know, universities that are serving Northeastern Ohio, which is bleeding students um, and already don't have a whole lot of money. Your ball states, some of these smaller end Mac schools, some of these smaller end Conference USA schools, those are the ones I would be way more worried about rather than somebody like a Boston College or a Vanderbilt that has a much larger endowment and has greater financial and alumni pressures to stay in the game. You just answered one of my questions. I was going to jump in. I was just going to say, like, you know, could you see a Power 5 team, like one of the lower ones, like leaving the conference? And I think you just answered that. But I just oh, want to chime in. Yeah, I, I will say, based on my research right now, and this is all – this could all change – the one place where I think it might be possible right now would be the Pac-12 because you have a couple of those schools which are secretly not rich. Um, what happened is many Pac-12 institutions embarked on facilities, a facility you know, construction plan with the assumption that you're going to be making a lot more money from the Pac-12 network and a lot more money from your football games than you actually did. And then you had, uh, in California's case, um, you went hugely over budget for the, the Cal football stadium uh, renovation, um, which now means that you're on the hook for like basically a mortgage that you can't really afford. Um, and you've had the declining revenues every year from the, uh, from, from the network. So now if you're facing a recession and now you're facing enrollment declines, I think schools like Washington state and Oregon state and maybe Cal uh, and maybe some of these Arizona schools, depending on what happens with copper, or what happens to some of these other industries, they could be at a place where they have to make some more difficult choices, um, especially because the revenue there just simply isn't as strong. And so like at that point, it'd be more like if I'm USC or if I'm Oregon or if I'm a school with leverage, do I want to make sure that I tie my long-term financial future with schools that are definitely going to be a financial drag? Um, I don't think that dynamic right now is at play in the Big Ten or in the SEC or in the ACC, where you have long-term locked in big money TV. Yeah. I, it's kind of crazy to, you know, the PAC 12 has is a power five conference. It has two, it has two major, major national brands in, in it. And it just kind of doesn't, it doesn't make money. Like it's bleeding money. And at the same time, you know, their headquarters are in, San Francisco of all places. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say that it doesn't make money because it does make money. They, they, they do, they do get a 24, $25 million check from, from ESPN and ESPN would love to re-sign them uh, at potentially 35 or, or 40 million. Like there, there's, there's an appetite for that. The problem is it doesn't make enough money and that everybody else makes way more money. And you're right. Their expenses are higher. They're in their real estate and production costs for a network that nobody cares about are astronomical like i don't know have either of you two ever been to big 10 headquarters uh no. i haven't no yeah so if you haven't seen it 
it's not that fancy of a building. It's out by O'Hare Airport in Chicago. It's like right next to a Brazilian steakhouse. It looks like it's kind of in a strip mall sort of thing. The SEC headquarters is in Birmingham, and it's, it's, it's not the fanciest thing in the world. It doesn't have to be. Um, whereas Pac-12 headquarters are, is, is some of the most expensive real estate outside of New York in the entire country. Um, and it's for a network that nobody wants. Uh, the interest, the, the baked-in interest in, uh, in college athletics in the West Coast outside of Salt Lake and maybe Portland, it just isn't there. And quite frankly, if I lived in L.A., I'd go outside a hell of a lot more too, right? I'm in Chicago. Um, I, I watch more TV in Chicago than I would, I think, if I lived in Southern California. Like the, you, you just – you can't make the same baseline economic assumptions like you can in the South or the Midwest because the, the, the passion is different. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that schools are dropping Olympic sports. Um, Wisconsin, they just canceled all their spring sports across the board for 2021. Is that something that might start happening permanently? Like, will schools start looking at, okay, we can do football and we can do basketball because that's where our funding comes from. And then we need to find enough scholarships to women's scholarships to fulfill title nine. And that's it. Well, I mean, right now the NCAA says, what is it? I think you have to, I think you have to have 16 sports to be in division one and a bunch of G five schools have asked for a waiver for that. But a big reason that a lot of these programs have swim teams and track teams isn't just for title nine. It's because the big 10, the NCAA make them. Um, I have written about this extensively for extra points, but generally it is not a cost savings move for most of these schools to drop Olympic sports. Cause for most, you know, for college football, you get 85 scholarships and those are all full scholarships for men's basketball, women's basketball, get 12 or 13. Those are full scholarships, but for soccer, you get 9.9 and those are partials. So very few people on a soccer team in the big 10 or anywhere are on a full scholarship. Most of them are still paying some tuition or they're paying some room and there's some, some board. And if you don't have that soccer team, that kid's not going to that school. Um, so for, if you're trying to maximize your enrollment or if you're at a smaller school, you might actually make money on that Olympic sport in terms of getting extra tuition and enrollment and fees that you wouldn't get otherwise. Um, even though your athletic department's going to say you lost 600 grand. So I think it's really short-sighted that some of these schools are, are cutting money. Like at Cincinnati, for example, they cut their men's soccer program. They say they saved 800 grand. And then, you know, some, some other economists went back and they, they double-checked the math of the tuition rebates, and it looks like you saved about 200. And if you had done things just a little bit differently, you could, you could pretty easily break even, and depending on what Cincinnati's enrollment projections are going to look like. So I, I can tell you full stop, it's going to happen. Schools, uh, there's, there are schools in every conference, big conferences, small conferences across Division One are looking at cost savings. They're going to cut Olympic sports. I don't think it has to be that way. And I think several of those schools are going to do it, even though it's going to, their athletic department is going to say, look, we saved all this money. Like we're, we're great stewards of resources, but it will hurt their institutions. And they're, they're, that's why division two and division three has sports at all. They don't get any television. They don't sell a whole lot of tickets. It still sometimes makes their schools money. Right. I mean, I know my sister plays D2, plays D2 softball and like, the team carries 40 girls. So it's because yeah. they don't have scholarship. You know, they don't have, they just give aid. They don't give athletic scholarships. It's super common in division two and especially at the division three level to start sports, especially football, just to increase male enrollment. 
because you realize if you do this, you're going to get 90 guys that are going to come to your school that wouldn't otherwise. And that's going to help fix your, your gender imbalance a little bit. And, and candidly, there's some division one schools that do that too. And, uh, it's going to be interesting to see whether the school consults their actual economists and their actual business schools before they make some of these decisions. Cause you got all these experts on campuses that can actually help you break down that money. And sometimes schools just don't listen to them. Right. So speaking of money, you know, there's a lot of, um, when conference commissioners went on call with vice president Pence earlier this week or last week, they said that, if students aren't on campus, they won't have false ports. So do you think that when rubber meets the road and they have to move fall classes online, that they'll follow through on that? And will there be some kind of fallout from the pay the players crowd because of it? Well, I, I, I do think that you really can't have college football if you can't have kids on campus. And the biggest reason for that, I think most of these athletic directors and presidents um, have, have been kind of subtle. They've talked about, oh, you know, the compromises, the integrity of the sport, or it's important to the fan experience. The real reason is they're all getting their asses sued. And if you are trying to argue in court that this is an amateur athletics enterprise and that the, these, these athletes are regular students, and then you bring them on campus when the regular students can't, that is exhibit A, B, C, D, and E in your next antitrust trial when O'Bannon hauls back in uh, for um, an appeal and you are going to lose. Like people at Michigan and Penn State and Notre Dame, they're not stupid. They understand those optics. The NFL can get away with this a little bit because they have a collective bargaining agreement and those people are getting a lot of money. And the football players here aren't. The only guy that I think that's really argued in earnest that you might be able to do it without students on campus has been Mike Oresco at the American Athletic Conference. And I think Danny White at UCF may, may have mentioned this earlier yesterday. And they're talking about this right now because there's the, the incentive to have football one way or the other is so critical to those schools. They will be in enormous financial problems if they can't get their ESPN check and if they can't um, get the revenue, which they need to run their entire athletic departments. Um, they, so they, they have to do it. But ultimately, it's not going to be their choice. Um, the university presidents and athletic directors, they, you know, they can push this, but even if they change their mind and say, we want to do it, it's the governors. It's the people that aren't affiliated with the school that are going to make that decision. And I would be completely blown away if we have college football without students on campus. This is, it's simply not a sport that you can play in an empty stadium. Um, the, the legal risk is, is simply too high. And one thing that's kind of the popular uh, alternate that's being thrown around is a February to June season. Um, personally, I'm bearish on there being sports at all until there's a, until there's a vaccine widely available. You can drive up to CBS, walk in, get it, walk out. And I just don't think that when schools sit down and go, okay, if I'm the university of Miami, right, I have to come to East Lansing. And if, e and if MSU and U of M don't run out Ford Field, right, they're playing outside in Michigan in January when they've lived in the South probably their entire lives. So I, I view February to June 
as kind of like a high school girlfriend you're going to different you're going to a different college as you know you talk about it and you're like we're going to text every day we'll call every night we'll visit every weekend and then you're broken up by october yeah i i know i i don't feel like i can give a really solid projection about this because there's there's so much uncertainty like what what i can tell you is when i have talked and i don't talk to a ton but when i've talked to athletic leaders this they, they i have been told this is something that they're discussing and that there is just an absolute enormous desire to play a football season because everybody needs the tv money if you don't play a 2020 season at all espn's not going to pay you and you're not going to sell tickets. You're not going to sell $12 beers. You're not going to sell $30 parking spots. And that's what keeps everything else running because these places simply do with few exceptions, don't have massive cash reserves. And they also know if there's no football fall enrollment for students is going to plummet and they're not going to make nearly as much money because people are not spending $40,000 to just watch lectures at home online. Schools are not going to be able to charge that same amount of money. Um, so February right now seems an attractive potential alternative because you could still get that money, uh, from cable and buy some time for some herd immunity or for some other developments. And listen, man, I'm not an epidemiologist. I've talked to some doctors and nobody has ruled out, ruled that possibility out completely. So I'd say it could happen. Um, I think a football season that starts in October could still happen. I think a football season that starts on time is highly unlikely given the, the lack of testing that that's happening nationwide right now. Um, if it happens in February, obviously there's a slew of other things that have to be considered. You know, you tear an ACL, you miss two seasons. Uh, obviously that's not really fair. Um, the length of the season, you know, may, may have to change the, the dates or locations of some of these games may have to change. And, and that we'll know more about later this year. All I can tell you is that people are talking about it. And no one's saying it's an impossibility yet. And if there's any way, come hell or high water, that the Big Ten or the SEC or these major schools can have some semblance of football season, even if the games all suck, they're going to do it. Um, because the alternative is simply um, too financially catastrophic for them to get to, to forecast otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I'm, I'm very bearish on any, on any major event happening like i have concert tickets in june and they haven't canceled yet and i'm just kind of like come on dude like just just cancel the just cancel the goddamn show <laughs> you know like just yeah, but yeah. <laughs> just do it so i can go to Ticketmaster and not get my refund you know it's just kind of like um so lucas you have a couple questions for him why don't you go ahead and let him rip mm, i only had one that i wanted to contribute and i just I'm trying to, I'm making it a dig at Michigan, um, but about Ohio State. <laughs> so I don't know if you saw when Michigan and Ohio State had the same division record in 2018. I don't know if you saw that picture online um, in supposedly in the Michigan football show, tro their very vast trophies that they won over the last 15 years. Um, they have, a 2018 Big Ten East Co-Champions Trophy. Have you seen this picture? I, ha I have seen this picture, yes. They, I mean, they technically did win half the division. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just we, – we dig at them because, you know, when MSU won the Big Ten, when they shared the Big Ten title in basketball, they were all just chirping at us, co-champs, co-champs, co-champs. And then this picture came out. Um, 
my question is, how afraid are you that Mel Tucker will take over the Big Ten East and share the next co-champions trophy with your Buckeyes instead of Michigan? Um, <laughs> I am uh, – I'm not convinced Mel Tucker is a great coach yet. And I understand why Michigan okay. – why Michigan State made – the decision that they made. I mean, like, here, here's the data set that I, I think that we have, right? We know that this is a guy that knows defense very well. Uh, he didn't really work out in the NFL with the Bears. Uh, he has the endorsement of some of the smartest minds and most established programs in college football. He's seen Ohio State. He's seen Alabama. He's seen positive you know, pro development in the NFL. So I think he has an idea for how, how a program works. Um, we saw a little bit of a proof of concept at Colorado, but like guys, like the, the truth is in a pretty weak league in a manageable schedule with, you know, I know they had a lot of injuries and they, they didn't have their, their best wide receiver for part of the year. They didn't make a bowl game. Like they recruited right. better than Colorado has done before, but all you saw was the beginning of a proof of concept. And to me, I don't know if that data set indicates we got to pay this guy $5 million and, and, and stake the future on it. You, you did that because you guys struck out on a couple other coaches. It's possible, but like we've seen the blueprint for what has to happen for Michigan State to win a Big Ten uh, division right now. And what we saw at the peak of their powers was Michigan uh, struggling, uh, Michigan State being able to secure not just some excellent prospects out of Ohio that were coached up, but they, 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 they beat Ohio State head-to-head -head in a couple of recruiting battles that for guys Ohio State really wanted. They had multiple blue-chip kids in a class, and then they hit – on almost all of them. The team that made the playoff, I think almost every single blue chip kid that they, that they recruited became a multi-year starter. Several of them went to the NFL. And that's a hit rate that is uh, uncommon. You have to do everything right. And you also kind of have to hope that somebody else messes up a little bit. I get that that's frustrating, but that's the way that most programs in college football are right now. That's how Auburn wins that. That's how right. Auburn wins divisions. Like, right. That's, that's how anybody in the big 10 West is going to win anything. And, do I see a path where things go really well for Michigan state and they can pass Michigan and they can beat them head to head and, and start winning a couple of these battles? Sure. But as much as we'd like to dunk on Michigan and as much as they've underachieved relative to their expectations before Harbaugh got there, it's still a top 15 program. Um, and Ohio state's recruiting at a level right now that is better than almost anybody. Like the, the 20, their recruiting class right now is far and away the best in the country. So you would require some luck and they've gotten lucky before. Um, but like I, I don't I don't look at this right now and think like this is the data is telling me this is definitely the ascendant program in the division. Like that school, that athletic department, and that roster, it's kind of a mess. I, I, I think it's probably and and this is not the year you want to be bringing in a new coach and a new system and trying to install a new culture because you're not in that locker room with the, with those kids. Like I think anybody that makes a coaching change now is probably at a bigger disadvantage. Um, just because of everything that's happening right now. I put you guys in the same boat as Missouri. Um, where we've seen them win divisions. We've seen them do things, but this is the worst timing to try to be rebuilding everything. Yeah. You know, I think before, before the quarantine and like the world started ending, I think we were kind of, we were, we were sober to the fact that, that next year, no matter how well Tucker recruited in the off season, no matter how the spring game would look, I think we were looking at a four win team next year. And I think, you know, that given, given what, given what we have and given, given the last two years with D'Antonio, I think that there's a lot of, 
there's a lot of excitement just because it's a fresh face. He's sending out recruiting bat, bat signals. His staff is sending out recruiting bat signals. It's a young, diverse staff. And, you know, they're even in, even in a pandemic, they're still recruiting. They're doing virtual visits. I know that they're not the only ones doing that. Yeah. But they're, you know, Michigan State literally had zero kids in the class of 2021 committed when Tucker took over. Now he has like six. So I, I'm not, I'm, and you know, it's, it's a battle for five stars. I think we all kind of understand that, but I think it's just, I think that personally, this is my point of view. I think that, I think that if next season happens, it's a four win season or a three win season, depending on how many games you play. And you know, the year after that, we'll, we'll see, you know, I, I'm not too psyched about the quarterback room there. Um, I kind of wish that we had been more aggressive in the portal before D'Antonio decided to retire. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a palpable excitement around East Lansing just because it's fresh and we know we're not going to see D'Antonio and his country club buddies run short side jet sweeps. <laughs> Yeah, listen, I'm not going to begrudge anybody for feeling optimistic, especially after the kind of slow-motion malaise that you guys experienced over the past couple of years. So many different, you should feel optimistic. Um, it is so hard for me when people ask me about depth chart kind of questions just because I feel like we're entering into an era where I can't possibly predict how any player is going to develop other than, generally speaking, a four- and five-star guy is going to have a higher ceiling than a three-star. I don't know what kids are eating right now. I don't know who's, who's exercising. I don't know who's, who has um, an emotional support system. Uh, I don't know how you're establishing a culture remotely. Like, I, I imagine whenever we have football again, some kids that were really successful the year before are going to have terrible seasons, and some people are going to kind of move up. Like, this would be a, a year of a lot of – a very tumultuous year. Um, I, I think you could definitely point to some initial positive returns in recruiting just because Michigan State was doing so poorly before. Um, it's unfortunate that D'Antonio timed his, uh, his departure when he did. Like that, I think that really set the school back financially and, and probably timing wise. Um, but we'll, we'll have to see, like it, it, Tucker may end up being great. I don't look at the data right now and think that's a sure thing, but even sometimes you hire sure things that they sometimes suck too. Um, but your, your, your hunch that the first season back is going to be a rough one. I think that's probably accurate. And so if you just look at it as, Hey, next year's year zero. Not year one. We had to make a hire at a terrible time. We had to turn over this roster. We had to salvage a crappy recruiting class. Let's work on culture. And then whatever happens after that happens, I think it'll be fine. Yeah, there was a lot of talk like around the when like people wanted D'Antonio to retire. That was like, you know, like what his statue was going to be. And now looking back, like I don't, I don't think I. I even want him to have a statue just like the last two years, the decisions he made like Duffy Daugherty doesn't have a statue at MSU and he basically integrated college football. So it's kind of like, so it's kind of like if you're not going to build a statue for him, why would you build one for a guy who oversaw it, who built up a program and then tore it back down? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, you guys should have a Duffy statue. Like that's, that's clearly somebody who did not just amazing things for your program specifically, but for lots of other programs, um, not, I mean, 
not just for 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 making Michigan State uh, a pinnacle for showing that you can have an integrated football team that's successful, but his assistants left for Nebraska, for Wyoming, all over the country, and and carried that with them as well as being kind of you know a run of player coaches, players coaches rather than hard ass disciplinarians. You're right. Like you know, as an Ohio State fan, I know a little bit about uh, coaches not leaving on the best of terms. Like nobody <laughs> no, nobody really leaves Ohio State uh, because they want to. It's because there was some kind of scandal or your, your ass gets you know, shipped out of town. And honestly, or that's the way it is heart. a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or that's, 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 that's how it is. But I don't, I wouldn't blame anybody for looking at D'Antonio's era as decisively mixed, especially as we learn more uh, about this lawsuit. Clearly did a lot of good things. Clearly did a lot of things that were less good. Like I'm, I'm over being angry with him, but you know, it's like, thank you for what you did after a while, but it was so clear watching the last two seasons. Like you said, he wore out – like he kind of – like what, what uh, Spartan Dog said, it's like you kind of wore out your welcome and he tore it down and he shouldn't have He shouldn't have been allowed to do that. That's what made me upset is that he stuck around and ran it like a, his best friends were coaching the team and there, there wasn't the improvement. You know, like the, the sophomores in 2017 were pretty much the same players – in 2019 and I don't think that's good for them or the coaches it's not good for anybody especially the fans who want to see winning and I think that's just where the fan base was is that half of us were like it's time it's time to go half of us were like there's still a good portion who defend him to the death and I'm all for that but it's just at the point where I'm like thank you for what you did but I'm glad you moved on I hope you're happy you know maybe maybe if you do coaching again, kind of look at your mistakes and see what, see what happened, but he's never coaching again. That's for sure. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think that's definitely true. All right. Um, I mean, and that's, that's, that's how a lot of, of program builders are. Program building is one thing. It's one skill set. Program sustaining is a very different skill set. And a lot of really elite coaches throughout college football history don't have both. Um, it's rare that, that you run into a guy like Nick Saban and, and he needed some time to, to kind of develop those, those skill sets too. Um, there's a lot more urban Myers, I think in the history of college football than there are Sabans who are able to, or, or Davos to kind of keep that running over a long period of time. Well, Matt Brown, we, uh, we thank you for coming on. Uh, yeah, thanks man. Yeah. Do you want to plug, yeah. do you want to plug your newsletter, your social Definitely. medias? I would love to plug them. So, uh, as you may have heard, I no longer have a job uh, at SB Nation. A lot, a lot of sports journalists are outside or don't have work anymore. Um, I run a newsletter called Extra Points, which covers the off-the-field forces that shape what you see on the field. So, this is a newsletter that talks a lot about how population demographic changes uh, impact how programs recruit, how changes in higher ed or um, you know, state economies change football budgets and help decide who's good and who's not going to be good. How all the 150 years of college football history change uh, conference realignments or, or university priorities. A lot of those kind of stories, which I think matter a ton in determining what we see on the field. So you can subscribe to that at mattbrown.substack.com. You can also find it on my Twitter at mattbrownep. You can subscribe for free and you get two issues a week. Uh, and you can also do a paid subscription, which gives you four issues a week, 
uh, and that is $7 a month or $70 a year. There's a bunch of interest going to be over the next couple of weeks. I've got an interview lined up with uh, a commissioner of a division two athletic conference. Uh, I've got a couple of higher ed journalists coming on. We've got some, some big voices in FCS football. We're going to have a lot more over the summer because buddy, I got nothing but time. And so if you really want to understand uh, everything that's going on in college football, besides just the depth charts, I think you'll enjoy extra points and why not give it a shot. All right, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on. Like I said, you are our first not MSU guest, and we appreciate uh, yeah, we appreciate you, you dunking on Michigan with us. Hey, listen, <laughs> it's it's my pleasure. I'm always happy to dunk on Michigan. Um, <laughs> thanks, fellas. This was yep. fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Matt Brown. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we now welcome on a member of the Bacon Warrior Board of Directors, as we're called. Brett, what's going on? Not much. Excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. So here's what we're going to do for the, um, for the post-interview part of the pod. Uh, first, I'm going to pitch you guys a couple documentaries that you guys should watch. And then we're going to build our dream golf foursome. So, hey, idiot, Spartan Dog 97 when you're editing this, put in the Shark Tank right here. All right. So, I have two docs that you guys should One is the classic documentary going way too deep on a really obscure thing. And the second one is a more modern Tiger King variety. At any point, you guys can just say, I'm out, and then I'll stop describing. I like it. I don't like your product. Yeah, I don't like your product. I don't like your product. So, the first one is called Sound Waves. And it's about the history of sound design in movies. So it basically covers from the talkies until present day, how they got sound from the stage into, into the finished film. And it kind of talks about how in the early days, they didn't have like lapel mics or boom mics. So actors could only stand in one place and have a microphone like hidden in a bush. And they only could talk into that microphone. Otherwise, it wouldn't be picked up. And it, the, sound wouldn't, the sound would cut out. And it went all the way. They spent a significant amount of time on Star Wars for obvious reasons. You know, how they got Chewbacca's roar. How they, um, how they made the sounds for the lightsabers and the blasters. And then um, they talk about Top Gun. And here's something that I didn't know. I don't want to spoil it for the pod. Uh, for Top Gun, when the sound designer for Top Gun went to like an actual naval base to record jets taking off, she thought it was kind of wimpy. So what she did was she mixed in like tigers and lions roars into that's how you get the whoosh and, yeah, the, whoosh. and, the, and, okay. the, and the sound effects. So that one's really cool. Um, it's on Hoopla. So basically, if you have if you have a library card, you can log in to see if your library participates, and you can rent so many titles a month. And they have a oh. lot of they have a lot of great titles on there. I recommend checking it out. Um, it also supports your local library, a thing you already pay for, so you might as well use it. Hmm. I didn't realize Hoopla was like a big time thing. I keep, I drive by my. Uh, library every day on, on the way to work and it says like you know check out hoopla right now i just thought it was one of those things they made up on their own so you learn something new every day 
Yeah. So here, here's the second documentary. Again, this is more of the Tiger King pulpy true crime. There's no way this shit's fucking real aspect. <laughs> Uh, this one's called the the boy band con, and it centers around Lou Perlman. Lou Perlman was the guy who basically founded Backstreet Boys and NSYNC in the '90s and started this boy band craze. But basically, the entire time he was using the boy bands as a front for a Ponzi scheme, and it kind of goes into his life. You know what happened when the band when the band found out like they weren't making as much money um, it was produced by Lance Bass. So um, he's in it a lot. His mom's in it. Um, the non Timberlake members of NSYNC are in it. They only have one backstreet boy, which was like, you can't get more than one backstreet boy. <laughs> uh, they have other, they have other, you know, artists that were signed to Perman's label. Um, they also have Aaron Carter. And this is kind of what I wanted to talk about. I'm in. I'm in. Aaron Carter, yeah. that guy needs some fucking help. Like, he was <laughs> something is, he's obviously like suffering from addiction or some kind of mental illness or something because he was unhinged in, throughout this documentary. He was crying and screaming and belligerent at multiple points. And I don't fucking get it. <laughs> I just yeah, I grew up when those, when those guys were in their prime. You know, as the senior member of Bacon Wire, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in 100. Um, percent I'd like to make an investment offer. All right, oh, yeah. good deal. You can find that on YouTube. I don't know if you need a YouTube okay. premium membership, or you can watch it free with ads. I'm pretty what, sure you can watch it free with. What's ads. it called again? The Boy Band Con. So, we're gonna hop into our second idea we had. There's a lot of talk about golf in the state of Michigan recently. No kidding. And, <laughs> and what we wanted to do was we wanted to build our dream foursome to go golfing with once Whitland, that's Whitmer plus Joseph Stalin, <laughs> would open up the golf courses and let it go. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put our names in I'm going to, I'm putting our names right now on a random name generator and that'll determine our order for a snake draft. You already have yourself. So you need three other golfers, real or fictional to flush out your foursome. So here we go. Brett, you're first followed by Lucas and then me. So we're going to do this snake draft style. Brett, who are you taking first? Well, I've always dreamed of having this opportunity. I think is any person growing up watching Tiger Woods, I think just having the opportunity to play with him is something you can't pass on. So with the first pick, I'm going to go with Happy Gilmore. Um, I'm actually going to switch it up a little bit here. Um, I love Tiger Woods, but I think playing with Happy Gilmore was something that is absolutely just going to be out of control. So I'll go with Happy Gilmore with the first pick. Oh, heavy hitter off the board early. Lucas is pissed. <laughs> Damn it. Um, my number one or three, however, whatever order, you know, my first pick is the Golden Bear himself, Jack Nicholas. Um, that dates me even more, but I used to have his clubs. 
Um, I've just always been fascinated by him. I watched, you know, old golf a couple weeks ago since we didn't get our sweet masters tournament. And he was just really fucking cool to see out there. Like he kind of didn't really break the mold because he was another white dude golfing, but you know, he had a big old, he had, he was dragging a wagon, you know, people noticed that about him. You know, he wasn't the stereotypical looking golfer. And that's just some one small thing that was cool about him, but he was just such a kick-ass golfer. He was, he's, he's still the goat until Tiger Woods wins a couple more in my eyes. All right. So my first pick, I'm also going with the real life golfer. Um, this is the, this is a guy that I watched uh, when I wanted to learn how to golf because I'm also left-handed. Um, I'm picking Phil Mickelson as my first guy. Um, I think Phil would be cool to golf with. He's a cool guy. I go to, I went to a couple tournaments and he was always, you know, very, um, very open, very friendly with everyone. So I think Phil would be a good time. And then my second pick, I'm going with Al Cervic from Caddyshack, Rodney Dangerfield, because you always need a rich guy. You always need a rich guy in your foursome. (laughs) And Al, I feel like I'm a bad golfer, but I feel like I could make a little money off of Al. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great pick. Lucas, you're uh, your no, second golfer. Bit. I'm just trying to get that SEO optimization for Wait, uh, draft. Wouldn't it be your turn then still? No, I picked my second golfer. I picked Phil and then I picked Al, Al Cervic. That's right. My bad. Oh, mine. Okay. I'm going to go with uh, John Daly um, just because he's fucking crazy, but we'd have to drink diet Pepsis instead of diet Cokes. Cause that's what he likes to drink. So I would I would make that a stipend of uh, of of what we what we uh, drink while we're on the course uh, hanging out. All right, Brett, your final two. <clears throat> Ooh, this is tough. Um, I'll have to put this one to our little board here to see if this is actually an approved golfer. Uh, but in his second life, post jail. Does OJ Simpson count as a golfer since he basically <laughs> lives his life on the golf course? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll count it. I'll count it. All right, give me the oh, juice, wow. man. All right, give me the juice. You can have a killer good time with OJ, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. He'll, he'll make sure he wears a uh, right-fitting golf glove. <laughs> I'll make sure. I'll make sure. <laughs> uh, your last golfer, you fucking freak. <laughs> Um, let's go with my last golfer. You know what? We just got to throw him in there. Give me Tiger Woods. I can't believe you fell to my last pick here, but, um, I guess he'll be my, my last pick. Full, full circle. Brett started out with a clickbait of Tiger Woods and then, and then at the very (laughs) last second, he scoops him up. My, uh, my final golfer is Danny Noonan from Caddyshack. Okay. Um, about Ty Webb, but you know, we kind of touched on Chevy Chase last episode I Major want asshole. I don't want to <laughs> golf with him because I'd probably make. I'd probably want to bash him over the head with my uh, Callaway or with my Cobra King F6 driver. Um, yeah, not to brag, but uh, <laughs> you know, nice little plug. Danny Noonan was clutch. Clutch as hell. He made the putt that uh, won the tournament that him and Ty were playing in. All right, my final golfer. He's a real. He's a real golfer, 
Uh, I'm going with Brooks Kepka. Ooh, uh, Brooks Kipka. I'm from South Africa, sir. Uh, I think, you know, Brooks likes to play fast. I like to play fast. I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm not an asshole about pace of play, but I can't stand like someone taking eight minutes to shoot and then having it hook, having it hook into the trees. <laughs> take like it's six practice swings. You see them like, <sighs> they line yeah. up the ball and then they go away from it. And then all of a sudden it duffs and it goes like 50 feet. Yeah, listen, you need you need two practice swings max. And Brooks and I are both big believers in that. He's an honorary, he's an honorary uh Blake. And I feel like I feel like I have a good foursome here. I'll throw it out. Um I'll make a spreadsheet of it. Shout out to my boy BB. <laughs> BB's big house. BB's big oh, yeah. house. Everyone visit when the quarantine's over. Yeah, we'll uh we'll come uh We'll vote on this. We'll have the public vote on this. Vote on the spreadsheet. I think it'll be. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting. But Brett, you're definitely gonna fucking lose, my guy. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Do I mean, have, I just hope to make it out of there alive. Jay Simpson was a great pick. Yeah. Uh, what is your? I know you're like pen pals with OJ. Like, do you want to explain that? Sorry, my, my uh, freeze froze here for a second. Oh, no, you're good. So I was saying that you were like uh, – you were pen pals with OJ or something. Like, yeah. So you want me to kind of explain how that happened? I, I would very much like yes, for please. you to explain yeah. how that happened. <laughs> All right, so um, in one of my fantasy football leagues, we do for our draft order reveal every year, we usually do some type of promotional video. So whether it's my friend smashing – paint balls against them like a wall or something or us pegging them with pies and whatever pie it is that's associated with the person so there's a lot of pressure this year to kind of ramp it up and get a celebrity appearance so oj simpson everybody knows who he is i mean he's notorious for um allegedly killing (laughs) his ex-wife and her friend allegedly (laughs) allegedly um so yeah and his presence on twitter last year was a big thing with his hate Hey, Twitter world, it's me. And so I just sent him a DM one day. I'm like, hey, Mr. Juice, would you mind filming a video for our fantasy football league? And I didn't think anything of it. So I just went to bed. I wake up the next morning and I see I have a a DM. And this is before our bacon wire group. So I didn't really, I mean, my DMs weren't flooding in. So I check it and it's it's from OJ Simpson. He's like, uh, he's like, yeah, how would that work? I'm like, what so i i sent him a quick dm back i'm like well you just like record a video and send it to me and i'm like i could like compensate you i'll donate to your favorite charity or something knowing that um he would probably pocket the money (laughs) (laughs) um yeah he's he's like yeah let me think about it and so he gave me his email address afterwards to like follow up because i his dms are open so they're constantly being flooded with um nefarious uh activity <laughs> so yeah he gave me his email and ever since then i mean once every week or two we'll shoot emails back and forth and just i mean it just and it's nothing like wow. any type of deep conversation it's like hey mr juice how's it going oh good good so mr juice I'm, yeah mr. so i'm trying to yeah i always call him mr juice um i, I kind of stole that from one of dave Chappelle's stand-ups um so yeah i'm trying to get him to sign something for me so that's kind of my next 
thing I want to propose to him. Are you are you sure? Are you sure you want to be in possession of anything autographed by OJ Simpson? Not just uh, for not for the first time he got in legal trouble, but the second. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great question. And kind of when this whole friendship blossomed, having to tell my mom was probably the most <laughs> awkward conversation I've ever had. Just because like growing up, like all our home videos in the background, you see OJ Simpson and them. So it's like the trial and whatnot. So I call her one day, I'm like, hey, mom, I need, I need to tell you something. And the last time I had this conversation with her, it's because I missed a final in college. Oh I just completely messed up the dates. So every time I call her and like, I have something like that to tell her, I'm like, mom, I got to talk to you. So I start the conversation that way. She's like, what'd you do this time? You're like, you're out of, you're, you're not in college anymore. I'm like, I befriended OJ Simpson. She's like, you did what? I'm like, yeah, I'm friends with OJ Simpson now. She's like, please tell me you won't tell anybody this. I'm like, I'm like that's way too late. You're the last one to know. <laughs> but to answer your question, I would love to own some memorabilia from OJ Simpson. Send them a pair of isotoners and see. <laughs> Yo, I mean, they have the new Bronco cup. I actually, it's funny when I was, uh, I was in the process of kind of figuring out a new car. Um, so I was at the Ford dealership months ago, and this is before the Super Bowl, and they kind of had talk that the Broncos coming back. So yeah. I proposed to my salesperson, I'm like, hey, I'll give you this idea. Maybe you give me some money off my next lease. And she's like, okay, what is it? I'm like, for the Super Bowl to unveil the Bronco, why don't you guys have OJ Simpson driving the white Bronco down the freeway and like have him like doing that? Or like, I'm like, you could even switch out somebody for OJ Simpson. I'm like, you could put Kevin Hart in the front seat, Dave Chappelle, get like Tom Brady if he's in the Super Bowl. Like, have like a mock white Bronco chase. Dave and Chappelle would be amazing. It would have been amazing. So I, I gave them idea. I gave Ford that idea for free. So, <laughs> when, when, and if they launch the Bronco advertising campaign, uh, we'll look forward to seeing Kevin Hart in a. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. You know what? Al Collins needs the bag. I hope they give it to AC man. It should be. Oh yeah, Gregor Bryant Gumble. That'd be pretty funny. Absolutely. They could do so many different like twists on that. <laughs> the opportunity is there. Or have it be one of the lawyers that's still alive. Oh, that'd be really good. Ooh, really good. I got it. No, fuck it. I got it. Chloe Kardashian. <laughs> oh, because she has. Yeah. Because oh. it might be OJ's daughter. She's definitely OJ's daughter. And I then, don't give a fuck what anybody says. Oh. She is OJ Simpson's daughter. Yeah, she's not built like the rest. <laughs> and then even Kim's uh, Kim's becoming a lawyer, so she could play the role of uh, oh. Rob Kardashian. Oh, oh yeah, maybe, oh. Maybe Kanye could be in there too. Oh, Kanye could play uh fuck. He could play OJ. Jesse Cochran. Jesse Cochran. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> I think the verdict might turn out a little bit different, but. And then when she comes <laughs> out not guilty, he could do a Sunday service thing. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Ford, if Ford, if you're listening. Yeah. but you this are is, this is free money oh it is <laughs> it's like, we'll just take a sponsorship of the pod you know yeah we'll trade we'll trade a pod sponsorship for this advertising idea that will take an electric f-150 yeah oh, we'll hell talk. yeah give me one of them yeah we're give talking Lucas. oh yeah dump, dump we'll that ta F we're talking spot. we're talking apple 1984 territory here <laughs> without a doubt without a doubt you know, uh, you're getting your Mustang Mach-E and, you know, I'll get an electric F-150 and, you know, whatever SD wants, you know, uh, uh, any, we'll, we'll support the brand. 
Absolutely. So Ford, we know you're listening. Yeah, we know you're yeah. listening. Ford, <laughs> free money, baby. <laughs> so, Brett, thanks for coming on for a short time. This was, this was awesome. Uh, thanks again to Matt Brown for coming on. It was incredibly detailed. Uh, Lu- Lucas, Brett, we have a big fucking guest next week. I, I am big truly excited. Big fucking guest. Oh, cannot fucking wait. So we're not going to tell you who it is. We're going to do a good old-fashioned cliffhanger here on the Bacon Wire his, podcast. His name <laughs> rhymes with Wolverine devotee. That's all I'm going <laughs> to Not really. Talk. Not really. And <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll give you a hint here to end the pod. Uh, thanks to Matt Brown. Brett, thanks to you for coming on thanks, and doing, doing some quick segments with us. Uh, where can the people find you? People can find me at Odell Bredham Jr. on Twitter. That's an all-time name. Uh, <laughs> can find Lucas. me at MSU Devotee. All, all one, no spaces or anything. Uh, I have a massive, I have 0.2K followers. Big, <laughs> big shit. King shit. Uh, here's, you can find me at SpartanDog97. And take us out. Sports broadcast. He gives it up. Face guard. And don't overhelp. Open look. Going as he hits it. What a play called by Tom Izzo. Dylan up ahead. Wins.